Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I see tonight's talk as uh, telling you about it, an ending and a beginning in dream research over the past 100 plus years. And I'm starting with the bold assertion that there's no longer any need to study Freud and Jung and their followers in any detail because of their emphasis on dreaming as being so different from waking thought as coming from unconscious processes that we barely have access to in waking life, if at all. And, if, and their emphasis on dreams as being so deep uh, that they're beyond our comprehension. I still think we can honor them and we can thank them for two enduring contributions. First, they are the people that told us that dreams have psychological meaning as opposed to religious or prophetic meaning, uh, which is what most people believe before they came along. We can also honor them for the general idea that at least some dreams may be symbolic, or in today's terms, that they are metaphoric, the product of figurative thinking, which is so pervasive in our waking life. Don't burn your bridges. I'm floating on air. Don't spill the beans. In fact, we can say Freud, Jung, and all other dream analysts are first and foremost metaphor interpreters, with Freud preferring slang and sexual metaphors and Jung spiritual and religious metaphors. But after saying we know much, owe much to Freud and Jung, I want to further assert to you that not a single specific hypothesis that they put forth has been supported by systematic research over the past 50 plus years. Nor is there any evidence for the highly publicized idea that dreams are just reactions to periodic activations of our brainstem when the rest of the brain is saying, what's going on here? Uh, during a phase of sleep called rapid eye movement sleep. In this theory, dreams are just what the uh, proponent of this theory calls cognitive trash. And I think that theory is just wrong, too. So theories about dreams are wide open for new thinking based on the findings that I present tonight. But I'm not feeling triumphant. I'm not gloating. Instead, the failures of these previous theorists make me wonder where we have gone wrong. What are we overlooking? How soon are we, too, to be bypass. For now, though, I'm going to claim this awesome lawfulness to dreams, as seen in the first graphic, a lawfulness that includes regular and understandable changes in dream content from ages six or seven to our late teens, consistency in what we dream about throughout the adult years, many cross-cultural similarities along with a few differences that make sense to us. Also, systematic gender patterns and a continuity with waking concerns, and concerns is our term to encompass what we think goes on in dreams, which is our wishes, our hopes, our fears, our worries, and our uh, confusion. So on what basis do I make these claims? Put another way, how do we uh, obtain the dreams we study? And are they good samples? Or as we say in the business, are they representative samples? Now, the general answer is that we collect dreams in a variety of ways that are seen in the next graphic. And the important point is that all these different ways lead to the same conclusion. So that's an important reason why we think uh, that we know what dreams are like. First, for example, thousands of dreams have been collected in sleep laboratories since the 1950s. These dreams were collected from awakenings in different stages of sleep, not just this rapid eye movement stage of sleep. And what we have to just think of when we talk about sleep is the idea that there's different levels of brain activation throughout sleep. We're always asleep, but there's different levels of brain activation during that sleep period. 
These awakenings lead to 80-90% dream recall by most people, and most people remember far less than that uh, when they're at home. Most of these participants were young adults, but there also have been studies of children in the laboratory and teenagers and the elderly. And secondly, we have dreams that were collected from college students in classrooms, voluntarily and anonymously, uh, either by asking them to write down their most recent dream, uh, which takes about 20 minutes, uh, or asking them to volunteer to keep a dream journal for a few weeks. And of course, the nice thing is that all those college uh, student dreams can then be compared with the laboratory collected dreams. And they don't differ very much except on one factor, and that's aggressiveness, hostility, anger kinds of variables, which we'll see running like a red thread of difference throughout this talk. But it's the general similarities that's important. It's excellent evidence that we have pretty good samples. And third, we have dreams that were collected by anthropologists in small traditional societies in the years between about 1920 and 1960, but some from the 1970s as well. And fourth, we obtain dreams from dream journals, that is, from individuals who write down their dreams for their own personal reasons, as a source of images for painting, uh, or for fun, for curiosity, or to see if they uh, dream like Freudians say they would, or Jungians. At the outset, it's important to say these dream journalists are doing this for themselves only, which is what makes their journals so valuable. Only later uh, do researchers obtain these journals. We call them unobtrusive measures. They are not created in reaction to our requests. They are not influenced by any biases that we may have. And they are very convincing if all these dream journals collected for various re uh, written for various reasons point in the same direction, give us the same finding. It's a powerful kind of, of data, uh, uh, a, a kind of data that wouldn't be expected to be useful by people in a more experimental uh, uh, field. So how do we study these dreams once we've collected them? Well, we don't interpret them, we dissect them. We chop them up, we put them in little, the, the little pieces in little boxes, and then we count the stuff we've put in the boxes. This approach is called content analysis. It's a systematic way to extract information from anything that's written down, a newspaper, a story, a biography, or, yes, a dream. And it's a method that's widely used in psychology, sociology, and political science. There's four steps to content analysis. They're all easy to understand, but they're uh, difficult to do, and they take time, they're tedious. First, we have to create our boxes. That is, we have to carefully define our categories so we know exactly what should, we should put in which boxes. This is far more difficult, as I already said, than it might seem because we might not all agree, for example, on what we are going to define as an aggression or a friendly act or whether the particular emotion is an aggression, is an anger, or is a fear, or what. For dreams, it turns out the categories are much like what the ones we would use if we were studying a play a play in waking life. There's a setting, such as indoors or outdoors. The setting may be familiar or unfamiliar. And there's a set of characters, men and women, adults and children, friends and relatives, or strangers, or animals. And there are social interactions, like friendly or aggressive interactions. And there's things that happen to us out of the blue, like a tree falls on us. We call those misfortunes, and they happen in one in every three dreams. Not a tree falling on you, but you can't find your keys, you can't get the door open, you can't remember where you left your wallet. 
And there are objects in dreams, which are like the props in a play, like a car or a TV or a baseball bat or a piano. Now, I'm not going to try to tell you all of our categories here tonight, but they cover everything, everything that appears in dreams. You'll see some of this when I present our findings. Now, once we have uh, categories, we count up the number of times various elements appear. How many outdoor settings? How many men? How many women? How many friendly pats on the back? How many physical attacks? And then we have to make various statistical corrections that I will explain in a minute. And why are they needed? They're needed to make comparisons when we have different sample sizes. When we have 80 dreams here and 200 dreams there. Or when we have long dreams and short dreams. We have to correct for that. And we do so, as I'll explain in a minute. After we've made those adjustments, we compare our findings with results from other studies. And usually, and most importantly, we compare our results with our findings with uh, our norms, as we call them, our typical dreams, which are 500 dreams from 100 college males and 500 dreams from 100 uh, uh, female uh, college students. Okay. Now we move to examples of how we turn our raw frequencies into useful numerical indicators. Now we'll talk about content indicator. By using percentages and ratios, and I'll use the word ratio and rate and index uh, kind of interchangeably, and you'll come to see pretty quickly what they mean. It's real basic. Let's start with a simple one that also yields a very useful and unsurprising finding. It's called animal percent. We count up all the animals in your dreams, uh, or set of dreams we're studying. And then we divide that by the total number of characters in the dreams. So if we have 50 or 500 dreams or two sample uh, in our samples, if we have long dreams compared to short dreams, we have a very reliable common comparison called the animal percent. And here we come to our first lawful finding. Animal percent always declines from age 5 or 6 to age 13 when it hits the adult level, which happens to be 4% for men and 6% for women. That's an example of a more general finding, and that is dream content changes from childhood to adulthood. And there's no surprise there, but the important thing is it makes sense. It gives us confidence in our method. Now, there's another finding with animal percent. It's higher in hunting and gathering societies than in settled agricultural societies or industrialized societies like ours. Again, no surprise, but it shows dreams are relating in a pretty systematic way to the waking world. Now let's look at another indicator we call male-female percent. And sometimes I, in my haste, I may switch to calling it the MF percent, but it means male-female percent. It's determined by dividing the total number of human males in a dream series or dream set by the total number of males plus females. And it yields a surprise this time, something no one anticipated, and we don't necessarily know what it means, and that is that the male-female percent is roughly 67.33 for men and 48.52 for women. That means that men dream more often of other men, but women dream equally of men and women. And that difference turns out uh, to hold for, nearly, uh, for early age and in most societies we've studied around the world. So it's very lawful. But as we will see, there are some individual differences, and those differences might suggest something else about dreams and, and the way in which they can be revealing about us. Now next we look at a very simple measure on the screen. What percentage of dream reports have at least one of something? Like in this case, aggression. At least one aggression, at least one misfortune, at least one friendly interaction, and so on. Now by aggression, I'm meaning everything from an angry thought, I don't like Joe that's standing over there, 
on up to uh, insulting them or excluding them or chasing them or stealing something from them on up to murder, and the murder rate in dreams is higher than in any American uh, uh, city. <clears throat> and I use aggression as an example here because it is so frequent in dreams. 44% of women's dreams and 47% of men's dreams in our norms have at least one aggression, although you'll see in a minute that the pattern of those aggressions differs just a little bit. Now, as a final example of our indicators, there's the FC index, or FC ratio. That is the friendliness to characters ratio. What is the rate of friendliness per character in the dream? Uh, and that's a very useful rate for us, a way to correct for the differing number of characters that appear in different people's dreams. And the FC ratio, incidentally, is about the same in both men and women's dreams, about 0.22. And here I want to make another generalization, another assertion of a lawfulness. Negative elements, aggressions, misfortunes, failures, negative emotions, are far more prevalent in dreams than positive elements, uh, like friendly interactions or good fortunes or successes or happiness or joy. Almost 80% of the norm dreams for men and women have at least one negative element, but only 53% have at least one of the more positive elements. And you start to understand why one of my students once finished her paper by saying, I think my dreams are mostly worst case scenarios. And I think it's a very interesting way of talking about dreams. Well, I've been talking about our norms, about differences of men and women and similarities. So let's first look at something very lawful about dreams, how men and women compare on uh, some of our indicators. With the women's scores indicated by the red bars, that you now see. We see that women have uh, less men in their dreams. You see that because it's below or to the left of that line. Um, and that's just the familiar male-female percent I just talked about a minute ago. But we also see that women have more people they know, which we call familiar characters uh, in their dreams, whereas in men's dreams there are more strangers, unknown characters, particularly unknown males. And then we see on this graph that men and women don't differ much on at least one friendliness or on at least one aggression or, or on whether they befriend as opposed to being befriended, whether they ag aggress as opposed to being aggressed upon. But at the very bottom, we see how they differ on aggression, the two most important ways they differ. Women have less physical aggression in their dream as indexed for us by what we call the physical aggression percent. That is, we take all the physical aggressions where you've been hit or chased or murdered or robbed or somebody uh, beat up your car, and we divide that by all the aggressions in the dreams. That's nasty remarks and angry thoughts and insults and so on. And women have far less physical aggression, uh, a lower physical aggression percent, but women are far more likely to, in their dreams, say that the character says, can I go with you to the store? And they say, no, we don't want you, or we don't want you in our group anymore. Much more rejecting, shunning, and excluding in women's dreams. Hey, well, all that's by way of warm-up. Now I want to turn to another type of lawfulness that was surprising to us. We are very consistent in what we dream about over months, years, and decades once we reach young adulthood. Something that you say, wait a second, I don't think so in my own dreams. But remember, you don't remember very many of dream your dreams, most of you. And you remember just fragments. And you tend to accentuate the unusual. And the culture tells you dreams are all crazy and inconsistent and jumbled and all over the place. But when we study your dreams systematically, we find they are indeed 
uh, very consistent. There are occasional changes, but those changes seem to reflect changes in our waking life, which is something I'll get to after I talk about, about consistency. So let's take a fast look at some of our findings. Uh, I'll be talking about uh, these kinds of three kinds of consistency, as now seen on the graphic. First, I'm going to talk about what we call absolute constancy. That means there's little or no change over time. There can be little fluctuations, but when I say dreams are consistent, I don't mean they, you dream 67, 33 on male-female percent every week and month, but over time, you'll be uh, around your own particular norm. There will be fluctuation. Secondly, I'm going to talk about relative consistency, where two, re two of our indicators have a relationship that remains the same. Uh, and I'll give examples of that. So the two may change down or up, but they always remain in the same relationship to each other. And finally, we talk about developmental regularity, where there's a consistent increase or decrease on some indicator over time. So let's start with Jason, our most detailed study of consistency. This study involves 600 of his dreams developed you know, into six sets, divided into six sets. He wrote them down between ages 37 and 53. But I also want to just mention in passing in a later study, he showed no changes when he was at the age of, of 70. It's very hard to tell the dreams of people over 65 or 70 from uh, the dreams of, of middle-aged adults if you're just reading uh, the dreams. This study was carried out in the 1960s by one of the leading dream researchers mentioned by Melanie Mayer, and that's uh, psychologist Calvin Hall, who created the content analysis system we use, developed the norms, and taught a few courses at UCSC after he retired to this area in the 1960s, and he was my uh, friend and, and teacher. Now first we look at absolute constancy with, this, uh, with Jason's male-female percent, his aggressions per character percent, uh, or index, excuse me, and his animal percent. And we see that his uh, male-female uh, uh, percentage stays in a fairly narrow range between 60 and 66. That is, uh, aggressions to character ratio showed some increase in the third and fourth sets of 100 and then was fairly even again. And by the way, he was much lower than our norms, generally speaking. And finally, we see his animal percent is right on the norms after uh, it rises in the second set and, and stays constant. So he, he shows a cons considerable amount of, of absolute constancy. But now we want to look at a relevant consistency that happens to have a little psychological interest, interest. And that is, Jason always has a higher aggressions per character index with women than with men, which is just the opposite of our norms. And you'll notice the gap seems to widen in the last set. So we might wonder, well, what's going on here? And we poke around. And if we pull out his aggressive and friendly interactions, his, generally his interactions with his wife and his daughter, we see the answer in the, in the next uh, slide. Jason has an increasing number of aggressive interactions with his wife and daughter over time, a developmental regularity. This high the high points, the last two sets, come during and after uh, a divorce, and while his daughter was becoming more independent and going off to college. Well, of course, those last two findings and comments are very suggestive about meaning in dreams, but we don't know quite enough about Jason's life to use him for other than a study of consistency. So I'll come back to some other findings like this that are provocative about connections with waking life. Jason's consistency was over 16 years in 600 dreams. Can we find it for a few months? 
Well, let's look at the 175 or so dreams from an entomologist who wrote them down for his own curiosity in the summer of 1939. It's a remarkable dream series, and you can read his preface uh, to it on the Dream Bank, where we call him the natural scientist. These dreams were never published. He never did anything more with them. But uh, a niece of his inherited them when he died in the 40s, and then she eventually sold all of his books to a scientific book dealer, and a psychiatrist who studied dreams bought this dream journal, and that's how it came to us. And it's been studied by several different people. Well, as you see in the graphic, what we used him for was consistency. He was consistent on a number of our indicators over the span of just three months, comparing uh, half of 175 with the other half of 175. And you can see he was almost exactly the same on male-female percent and familiarity percent. Those are the top two on the graphic. And next we see he varies a little uh, in the percentage of times he's a befriender in a on a friendly interaction, but he's about the same in the percentage of time he's an aggressor in aggressive interaction. And he's about the same on the two indicators for settings, uh, indoor, outdoor, and familiar, unfamiliar. And he's a little lower, though, on negative emotions in the second set. But all in all, I would contend to you that these findings show considerable, considerable absolute constancy over just three months. Well, I said earlier that consistency probably sets up in young adulthood, and we're going to take a look at that. But we don't have enough studies with enough dreams to be entirely confident of just when that happened. Here's a look at several indicators for a young man, Mark, who wrote down 30 dreams just after high school, another 30 as a junior in college, and 52 years after college. It's not quite a large enough a sample for us to be confident. It really takes 100 to 125 dreams in each sample for our indicators to be entirely reliable. But note how consistency he, consistent he is on his male-female percent uh, at the top and the FC ratio, the friendliness to characters index, at the bottom. But note also, right under the male-female percent, that his familiarity percent declines once he's in college. And that's an interesting finding for us because it could reflect leaving home to go across the country to school. And what we need is a study then of the dreams of seniors in high school and compare them uh, to when they are freshmen in college and see if they do indeed, now that they're in a world of a more impersonal world, a world of strangers, if that does change. Note also he is likely to be the aggressor once he's in college and to have a, a higher a, AC ratio, although I would note he's below our norms on aggression. And I also note, yes, as I hope you did, he is atypical in terms of his very low male-female percent. And it turns out that there were no adult males in his life until he was age 10, and he didn't bond deeply with those who then came into his life. But we don't know enough about Mark for me to make more of that, so again, I will postpone talking about that kind of issue. Now let's look at 400 of the dreams in a remarkable series by Kenneth who wrote down every dream he had in his first three years of college. Indeed, he's still writing them down at age 26, but they would overwhelm us because just the first three years of college is 2,022 dreams. And what we did was to study the first 100 he gave us, and then the first 100 he wrote down in the next year, 1997, the first 100 he wrote down in 1998, and then the last uh, 100 he sent us. And you can see at the top, he's remarkably consistent on what's called the aggression friendliness percent, an indicator that will come up again. And it's, it consists of putting all aggressions 
that uh, are in the dreams and dividing them by all aggressions plus all friendliness. And you'll see he's in the mid-60s, which means there are more aggressions than friendly interactions. 50-50 would mean there's an equal amount of friendliness and aggression. An AF percent of 50 would mean there's an equal amount of friendliness and aggression in his dream. Uh, so he, but he's not far from the male norm, which is 59%. And for women, incidentally, there is a difference on this. Uh, the aggression friendliness percent uh, is about equal. It's 51 for women. So their dreams have more balance of aggression and friendliness, just as they have more balance of men and women. And note at the top, note at the very bottom, excuse me, that he is consistent on dreams with at least one sexuality, which is defined for us as starting with just romantic thoughts and going up from there. And on this issue, he's right on the male norms, and it's a way of saying to you that uh, there is not a great deal of, of sexuality in the dreams of people at any age. With, of course, individual differences. And with everything I say, there are some individual differences, as we are soon going to see. But in between on Kenneth's graphic there, on his profile, and we call this an H profile based on the statistic we use, but we don't want to get into that, we notice there is variation. The aggressor percent, kind of a pinkish color, unless Adam changed it on me, jumps around a bit. And there are declines in the at least one aggression, which is in red or was in red, and then at least one friendliness in, in green. So it's a mixed picture, and we have to conclude on the basis of Mark and Kenneth that some indicators are already showing consistency at age 18 or 19, but others aren't. So we can't say for sure when dreams show the consistency of a Jason or other of the adults we have studied. Well, so much for consistency in individual dream journals. I now want to tell you quickly about three other kinds of consistency. First, there's historical consistency in what college students in the United States dream about. Again, a total surprise to us. Their dreams have not varied from the time Calvin Hall first collected them in the 1940s at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, to the late 1970s when a psychologist collected dreams at the University of Richmond in Virginia, to the early to the mid-1980s in Mighty Berserkly, where a former Santa Cruz student in Berkeley PhD, Veronica Tone, collected dreams uh, from uh, women students. And they are also the same in the early 1990s when we collected them in classes at the University of California uh, at Santa Cruz. Second, there's a cross-national consistency because college students in Canada, Switzerland, the Netherlands, India, and Japan have dream content similar to that of American students, with one important difference, where we could have more solid findings, that is, bigger samples, and that is that our dreams, maybe no surprise, are more likely to have aggression in them than the dreams of people in these other societies. Third, there's a cross-cultural consistency. The dreams collected by anthropologists are similar to ours on many of our indicators. Uh, as with us, there's always more familiar than unfamiliar characters, more aggression than friendliness, more misfortune than good fortune, more negative emotions than positive emotions. And of course, the findings on a gender difference on male-female percent also hold for these societies. Here, let me just say, what are the differences? Do these societies differ at all, besides on animal percent? Well, yes, they do. They often have more aggressions, and among those aggressions, they have a higher uh, physical aggressions percent. They are really out there hitting each other even more uh, than we are. Well, all these findings show the lawfulness, the regularity of dreams. But what do we actually dream about? Uh, all this is pretty abstract in a way, pretty quantitative. 
How, how does, and how does all this relate to waking thought? The answer is that most dreams are about familiar topics and that our dreams reflect our waking thoughts and concerns. We call this the continuity hypothesis. And I stress that this continuity is with our thought, with our concerns, with our interests, with our worries, not necessarily with what we do. So kids in school are not dreaming about doing their schoolwork. They're dreaming about the playground and their fun and their worries. In the same way, if you're doing something all day that's not really interesting to you, you're not dreaming about that. Uh, you're dreaming about things that interest you. Unless, of course, you're worried about your job, as my students who, who said dreams are a worst-case scenario, and she will sometimes have dreams uh, as a server that she's dropping plates or that uh, customers are yelling at her, which she also found other servers uh, sometimes experience. In other words, they weren't dreaming about the way work was, which was everything went fine. Lo and behold, occasionally, there they are, something's going wrong at work. So our findings on continuity, though, lead us to two simple rules for understanding the dreaming mind and connecting it with the waking world. First, frequency. The frequency of appearance of an element reveals the intensity of our concern. The more we dream about certain people or certain activities, the more we are concerned in waking life with that person or that activity. Second, the nature of our interactions and our dreams with these people reveal how we conceive of them, how we think about them, how we regard them in waking life as friend or foe, as helper, as someone who picks on us, uh, someone we like to push around, and so on. Now, we're confident of these generalizations because we can make very accurate inferences about people based on what we call a blind analysis, uh, which means an analysis in which we study the dreams without knowing one thing about the dreamer. Not one thing except what appears in those dream texts. And in a certain sense, we're then making a kind of prediction about outcomes, about future outcomes. And this is, in fact, the closest we can come to experiments in studying dream content. And here as an aside, I might say, yes, there have been uh, a few experimental studies, especially in the 50s and the 60s, uh, concerning dream content, but they didn't lead to impressive results. They mostly show you can't instigate dreams and you can't influence dream content very much. Dream content is, uh, does its own thing uh, in an amazing kind of way. But at the same time, the experimental method showed its power because it showed in this case it, its, its own uh, kinds of limits. Okay, let's see a blind analysis, uh, what we mean by all that and continuity with waking life in our best case, our most detailed case, a study of Barb Sanders, a middle-aged woman who gave us 3,115 dreams from a journal she kept over 20-plus years. She later gave us another 1,000 and some dreams, but we haven't studied those very much. I also interviewed her and her best women friends uh, after we studied her dreams. I included her friends when I did these interviews because they serve as judge and jury if the dreamer says our inferences are wrong. That is, if they agree with her, uh, then we're wrong. But if they agree with us, then maybe she has a blind spot or just doesn't want to admit certain things to us. It's a very powerful way out of a bind that past dream researchers found themselves in when dealing only with the dreamer. And you say, well, you like this. And they say, no, I don't. Well, how do you, how do you decide whether you were wrong or they are uh, deciding not to tell you what they think about this case. Now, 
Lord knows, I hope, we can all admit that we have our blind spots. And I think we all can admit that we have an inability to speak of some things that we know are truly uh, uh, so about ourselves. Not a lot of things, but just enough that it can often mess us up. And incidentally, here where we've had our toughest troubles uh, in previous studies is precisely when we study the dreams of men and women and we find these tense relationships with their spouse. And then we say, well, you have a lot of ambivalence towards your spouse. And they say, no, no, I love him dearly or I love her dearly. Well, it's not quite what the dreams say, but, so, but we're kind of stuck. Now, in the case of Barb Sanders, there were no disagreements. Our inferences were confirmed by her and her friends alike. Now, out of all our many findings on Barb Sanders that are all in a document on dreamresearch.net, uh, as well as in a, one of my books, I want to focus on her interactions with three important people in her life to show how detailed a dream dissection can be. And these three people are her mother and two of her best female friends. And I'm also going to make some brief mention of her dreams of her ex-husband. But this analysis that I'm making works just as well on her three siblings or her three daughters. In the slide now before you, the first line shows her normative or baseline numbers for friendly and aggressive interactions, for befriending, and for being the aggressor with most people uh, in general in her dreams. That is, we studied a random sample of 250 of her dreams as our starting point. And that gives us our baseline. Then in the next line are uh, the numbers for her interactions with her mother. And of course, I'm going to come back and walk through those with you. Then the next line uh, is her best friend of many decades, who is about the same age, and then a younger friend who was also more recent in her life. The point is to see how different the patterns are. And the punchline for what I'm going to say and about all these numbers is that these numbers capture the nature of her relationships with each of the three. Now, her mother's the most frequent character in her dreams, and she is indeed the dreamer's major concern uh, in life. And the relationship is highly ambivalent. The dreamer was never satisfied with her relationship uh, with her mother. And look at the AC ratio, 0.70, which is more than double the baseline of 0.33. Now with friendliness, it's a little low, but not really much below the baseline. I don't want to make too much of it. And notice, though, that Barb Sanders and her mother are equally likely to initiate friendly and aggressive uh, interaction. When they fight, sometimes one picks on the other. Some, uh, it's not uneven in their relationship. <clears throat> but now look at Ginny, her best friend. The AC index is only 0.26, and the, a a the FC index, the friendliness per character index, is a whopping 0.89. Never saw anything like it before. And notice they are equally likely to initiate the rare aggressive interactions that occur and the frequent friendly interactions. Now, I have seen them interact. They are respectful and caring of each other. They admire each other's positive qualities. They don't pick on each other. Uh, they support each other. Now look at the interactions with Lucy, who's probably 15, 20 years younger and partially blind. Uh, she was a more recent uh, entry into Barb Sanders' life. They came to know each other through being involved in plays. Um, Lucy is an, a, a pixie. Lucy is an imp. Lucy is cute. Uh, she's a charmer. And she's just that little bit of troublemaker uh, and a little bit of a dawdler and a little bit of a you know, tease that uh, characterized for me the word imp. 
Barb Sanders called her a little sister in our interview, and Lucy told me she admires and likes Barb Sanders as if she were a big sister. And indeed, in Waking Life, as Lucy told me, she would often frustrate Barb Sanders because she wouldn't show up on time for rehearsal, she wouldn't move around the stage the way Barb Sanders told her to, and, and, she, and uh, she would get scolded by Barb Sanders. Uh, she didn't always do what she was told. So in this case, then, the AC index is a little higher at 0.39, but the FC index is still very high at 0.63. But why I really use Lucy out of many possibilities is look at as the relationship, look at the a fact that it's Barb Sanders that initiates both the friendly and the aggressive interactions. That's the nature of their relationship. It's not equal. It's Barb Sanders initiate. Don't do that, Lucy, or Lucy, you look good today. Uh, Lucy, I really appreciated your remarks. That, that is their, their uh, relationship. Okay, now I want to just focus briefly on her ex-husband dreams. Barb Sanders had about 140 dreams of her ex-husband. They run to a type. Uh, they would be great to run as a late-night video of, of the brain. Uh, all of a sudden, he appears. She's in the house, and he appears. He said, oh, my God, he's, he's back. Um, and she's a little upset. And he kind of says, I'd like to come back. I'd like to be back. I'd like it to try it again. And uh, she's not so sure. And he promises to be, communicate better and to be more supportive. But she's very wary. Uh, and then he talks some more, and then he touches her. And she draws back. She's appalled, in fact, and then they start to argue, and she says, get out of here, and so on and so forth. That's, a, that's what goes on in these dreams. So the AF percent is elevated over her baseline. Her baseline is 49. It's elevated at 57, 59, and 61. But all of a sudden, what's striking is that in the last quarter of the dreams, it drops to 34. Now they are far more friendly. And... Both she and her friends reported to me that her attitude toward him had softened in recent years. And she said to me she could now think of him without becoming angry. That's 15 or 20 years later. There's resolution, there's resolution in dreams that it doesn't happen fast. Well, as I said, there's much more I could say on Barb Sanders and many other dreamers when it comes to continuity. But time is flying by even though most of us are not dreaming, at least not yet. But I think I have shown at the least that accurate psychological information can be extracted from dreams through content analysis. And that suggests dreams are lawful and that they have meaning, meaning in the sense of regularity and meaning in the sense of correlations with psychological and sociological variables. Ah, oh, but what about the bizarre and the unusual in dreams? Couldn't there be some nonsense too? Uh, couldn't there be some randomness? Couldn't there be some glitches? Some noise in the system, as some people say? Well, yes, there probably is, and I'm going to come to that and admit that in a few minutes. But there's maybe not as much as is generally thought. And in the next few minutes, I want to narrow down the degree of difference between dreaming and waking thought in terms of their bizarreness. Uh, not by suggesting necessarily that dreams are so rational, but also by suggesting that maybe waking thought is a little more bizarre than we like to think. First... Uh, there are good findings with dreams collected in the laboratory saying that most dreams are not as incredible and, and as bizarre as we like to think, as you now see in an upcoming graphic. That is, they are plausible uh, and reality-like. And this graphic shows that in a study of many hundreds of lab dreams, 65% were judged by the dream researchers as they read through them to have high credibility 
and 25% had medium credibility. Only 2% had no credibility. Conversely, when they were rated for bizarreness, which meant in this case events that could not happen or made no sense, half had no bizarreness, 40% had medium bizarreness. Only 2% were high on bizarreness. Generally speaking, these researchers concluded that 90% of dreams are reasonable, credible simulations of waking life. Now these findings fit with our own studies of unusual content because we find the content we emphasize when we talk about dreams is very rare. And I'll give just one example, and that's flying under our own power, where we're flapping our arms or we're soaring like Superman. People say, yeah, yeah, it's happened to me, and it has happened to maybe 50% of people. But it's less than one-half of 1% 1 of all our dream life. So it's a very small uh, percentage. So there's evidence then that dreams are not as bizarre as we like to think. But second, we have to consider a possibility here that waking thought may be pretty bizarre too. There are studies of what people are thinking and they're done through the use of random contacts via a pager. Uh, and they show what most of you know, that our minds wander, that memories or thoughts prop up, pop out of, uh, out of the blue, out of nowhere, and that we daydream. Well, I have a favorite study on this, and it goes back a long way. It was a professor, a psychology professor, who told the class, he said, I'm going to take from the podium periodically in a quarter, I'm going to shoot off this starter gun. And when I do, I want you to honestly write down what you were thinking. You know, put a name on it or anything. He did that six or seven times during the quarter. And the main finding was that only 25% were thinking about the lecture when the gun went off. Only 25%. So I know that you aren't paying attention. I know you're thinking about other things. The rest were thinking about a million uh, different things. And so here you are. When will this end? What am I going to do tomorrow? Gee, I haven't seen Frank in years. I mean, the, our minds are constantly on all of these other topics all at once. And so are we any uh, less bizarre in waking life than we are in uh, dreaming life? And I want to here make a very important point, and that is no one to date has done the next necessary study. And that is, we have to collect waking thought samples and dreams from the same people. No one has compared waking and dreaming thought with the same people as yet. And if we did that, since there's a lot of variation in how bizarre your waking thought is, that from one of you to another, it may be the people with the most bizarre dreams are also the ones with the most unusual waking thought patterns. Well, there's a third point, and this is tricky. Our thinking in dreams, our thinking in dreams is often very sensible, even when what we see or what we're doing is unusual. And we, th we, we think it's crazy. We know the room. We walk in the room and say, it doesn't look like my room. What's going on? I'm puzzled. We know that Uncle Joe is dressed very oddly in this dream. Well, what's going on? Or that it's not possible that we could be flying. We're flying. I'm flying. What's, what? What? This sensible thinking is often indexed by a feeling of confusion or surprise. And now I want you to consider the dream of a college student, uh, the dream about candles that now appears on the screen. The dreamer is confused. He's at a birthday party that turns out to be for him, and it's probably a 21st, 21st uh, birthday. He's puzzled and amazed that there are more candles on the cake every time he counts them. He says it makes no sense, and it worries him. So pretty sensible thinking to understand there's something crazy going on. 
Now I want to consider a powerfully clear thinking in the next dream. That of a widower we call Ed. And he's amazing too. And his dreams are on Dream Bank. And we've studied him in great detail. And I've written a very detailed paper about him. He wrote down every dream he had of his deceased wife. Because the first time that dream occurred to him, a month after she died, was stunning to him. And he was so glad to see her, and it was so real. And so he began writing those dreams down, and he wrote down 140-some 40, dreams about his deceased wife in the next 22 years. And only her, no other dreams. He enjoyed seeing her in his dreams. He felt closer to her again. In a very real psychological sense, experientially, he was with her again. And this is seen best in a very impactful type of dream that many people experience after the loss of a loved one. A dream in which they see the person alive and are amazed or thrilled or fearful or puzzled because they realize the person is dead. So now, on the next graphic, you see how Ed reacted to such a dream. He sees his deceased wife, Mary. He's surprised. He's excited. But he knows she's dead. His thinking is clear. He can't believe what he's seeing and experiencing. But he's nonetheless glad to experience it. This strikes me as pretty sensible, not bizarre at all. Reflecting his grieving state of mind. He knows she's gone, but he can't believe it. He can't accept it. He can't conceive of it. Now, Ed's dream, and indeed the a student's dream of the increasing number of candles on the birthday cake, and even your dreams of flying under your own power, bring us to another point about the unusual. Uh, one that we haven't answered adequately at all. And it's very hard to study, we've found. We've made very little project, progress. Could these dreams be metaphoric? Are they the product of the same ability to produce figurative thought that is present in waking life? That is, is a flying dream an elation dream? After all, we know that to be flying is to be up. When we're happy, we're flying. We're walking on air. We're high as a kite. And could the increasing number of candles on the student's birthday cake reflect his concern that was in the text of that dream, that life may pass too quickly, he says, after age 21? Is that a metaphoric statement of his worries? Now, in the case of N's dreams, Recall back to Ed's dream that I had up there a minute ago. The thought she is dead may have led to a metaphoric portrayal of that idea. Recall that her beautiful complexion changes into a waxen artificial face. That is indeed a very powerful image. Now consider another of Ed's dreams that's going to come up on the screen, where Mary is back to life. We call these back-to-life dreams as compared to dreams. He has dreams where he and Mary is sick, he's taking care of her. But he doesn't have that shock of, oh my goodness, she's alive, but she can't be because she's dead. It's just a, a dream, which many of you have had about deceased loved ones, where you're just doing the ordinary thing. But you don't have that back-to-life quality. This is another back-to-life dream, and this time he sees her across a road that he knows to be the dividing line between life and death. And we all know expressions about being on the other side. So right there, he may have made a very metaphoric statement that he knows somehow she is on the other side, but yet he can be in touch with her because she is in his mind, she is in his memory, and indeed in his notes about his dreams, he said, I'm not a highly religious person, but he said, I just feel like sometimes she visited me. A powerful uh, kind of feeling. Well, I could give other anecdotal examples of seemingly metaphoric 
aspects of dreams, and they are very tempting to believe. But here I must admit that we do not have the kind of systematic evidence that I would need to be convinced enough uh, to add metaphoric thinking to the lawfulness of dreams. And I add it, of course, because I hope there are students here, and it's a task that uh, cognitive, uh, cognitively oriented students, we call them cognitive psychologists, could well take up. Furthermore, I can say to you with chagrin that there are many unusual elements in Ed's dreams that do not seem to be metaphoric, no matter how hard we stretch, no matter, even though we can look at all of his dreams. And we found that there were even more such elements that we couldn't understand as metaphoric, unusual elements, in the dreams of Barb Sanders, where don't forget, we have a huge number of dreams and knew much more about her. So in the end, I do suspect there are some cognitive defects or glitches in dreams. They're not falling, waking, waking lawfulness. But there I also want to add that we've got to study waking glitches in our thinking uh, to see if there's uh, parts of our thinking during wakefulness that are not falling, following by a good lawful way. Now, the idea that there may be glitches in our dreams, cognitive defects, is supported by the fact that there are even more of these unusual and jumbled elements in a dream state I have not talked about yet tonight. And that's the little mini dreams we have just as we are falling asleep. Sleep onset dreams, we call them, and they've been studied three or four times in the, in the laboratory. They are very often scrambled and jumbled and just don't seem to make much sense. And that may fit with the fact that we are in a process of changing from one state to another, one level of activation to another. And that could fit with the idea that glitches could happen in dreams later in the night as activation levels uh, flutter. Well, having covered all this ground on dream content, I now want to step back in these final minutes uh, and then look at the big picture. And Lord knows, even wax philosophic for a tiny minute at the end. I want to talk about what dreams are. Where do, when do they occur? Uh, do we know anything about the parts of the brain that uh, generate them? And do they have a purpose? And if they don't, why do we, we insist so much that they do? First then, what are dreams? As I say in the graphic you now see, they are first and foremost, quotes, just a th form of thinking that draws on our waking conceptual system, on what we call our cognitive maps, which are filled with the information on how we feel about ourselves and about others, and about how the world works, about what it's like when we go into a restaurant or go to a theater and, and so on. And as I will show you in a minute, when we look at the neural network for dreaming, and yes, we do think we know something about the neural network for dreaming, dreams are the mind roaming freely with none of its usual internal or external uh, constraints. But having said that, which very academic and dry, they are far more than, than that. They are dramatizations of our concerns. They are realistic simulations of our lives. If they don't have specific metaphoric aspects, they are in a way a, one big metaphor, one big parable uh, about our lives. They really are like plays. Uh, they really are like soap operas. They're even like horror films sometimes. They are what the late Calvin Hall, way back in 1953, excuse me, called the embodiment, the very embodiment of our thoughts, which I mention here because recent studies, including brain imaging studies, 
show that our thoughts are not simply abstract schemas uh, like bloodless computer files. Uh, instead, our thinking, when we think of something, it kicks in responses in other parts of the brain, like movement responses and emotional responses. It's like that little abstract thought has all these little tendrils out to these other parts of the brain. And so we, we do more than think. We, we, in a certain way, experience uh, our thoughts as well. And dreams is where we most powerfully, I believe, experience uh, our thoughts. Well, when I say that dreams are the mind roaming freely without its usual constraints, I am then saying that dreams are the default mode of the brain under four conditions that now appear on a graphic. First, there has to be what we call a mature and intact neural network for dreaming, which I'm going to show you in just a minute. That is, it's what part of, it's, it's, it has to be, those parts of the brain that are necessary for dreaming have to be mature, you have to be 9 or 10 or 11, and there can't have, you can't have had certain kinds of brain injuries, which, again, we're going to get to. Second, we say the, dream, the brain has to be at a high enough level of activation, uh, and that level is certainly found at sleep onset, and when we go into this stage of sleep called rapid eye movement sleep, but also in the hour or two before we wake up when we are not necessarily in rapid eye movement sleep. And dreams from those uh, late uh, um, parts of sleep period or just before we wake up, uh, whether we're in REM or non-REM non as they're called sleep, are very similar uh, to each other. Uh, and that's contrary to our past beliefs and what, what you've heard through the media. The media is not to be faulted. We were wrong and told the media the wrong thing and now they keep saying it. Third, there have to be a blockage of of external stimuli. They ha you can't be receiving incoming visual and, and auditory messages and so on uh, and, and get into a dreaming state. There has to be blocks at key points that do happen in the brain and you can see exactly where they throw up what are called blockades uh, as we fall asleep. The gates are down for hearing and seeing and so on or, and they become very selective, uh, we could say. Now fourth, and most kind of mysterious or vague of all, uh, and no one understands it fully, we have to lose our self-control system. That system that keeps us focused on second-by-second -second events, that tells us what time it is, where we are, what we have to do next and tomorrow, and when do we get to the desserts, and is he over 55 minutes yet? All these things <laughs> keeping us uh, uh, focused. When that system goes down, then in the context of the other three variables, we dream. And we can dream even in a relaxed waking thought in a darkened room with the uh, uh, electroencephalogram showing that we're kind of awake. But we say, How, what are you doing? And they, don't, well, and they tell a small dream. So we can even maybe dream while we're awake under those four conditions. Well, maybe part of this mystery of, of the self-control uh, system is solved when we look at the parts of the brain that are needed and not needed for dreaming. We think we have come to know something about this issue in just the last 10 to 15 years through two types of studies that point in the same direction. One are studies called brain lesion studies. Those are studies of people that have suffered a brain injury. They are neurology patients. They come to a clinic. The other kinds of studies are of average individuals who are taking part in what are called neuroimaging studies with what you, words you've heard, PET scan and fMRI studies of, of everyday people uh, during sleep and comparing their sleep and waking. In the brain lesion studies, the people that come to the clinic are asked if they lost their dreaming. How is your dreaming? Has your dreaming changed at all uh, since your injury? 
And if so, how? Uh, and there are ways it can change. If you get injuries to a certain part of the visual association cortex, then you won't have the pictures anymore in the dreams, or you'll just see slides, as one person put it. They'll just be images that don't move. Now, in the imagery studies, waking, the waking brain is compared to low activation sleeping and then to rapid eye movement sleep. And during rapid eye movement sleep, when, we're, when most of the time we probably are dreaming, there is a reactivation, a differential reactivation though. That is, not all parts of the brain that are awake, that are active during waking, are reactivated during REM sleep, only uh, some of them. And so what you're going to see is a pattern that uh, mixes the uh, uh, findings with lesion studies and the findings with these uh, reactivation uh, kinds of studies. And so you now see the results. We don't need the red areas to dream. These are the areas concerned with balancing and seeing and moving and feeling, which are all you know, very much essential in waking life. That's roughly the red areas A, B, and C. And don't hold me to exactly, if you're a neurophysiologist, don't hold me exactly to a, an ideal diagram here. Uh, we're trying to make it um, uh, more general. But we also don't need, and this is important, we also don't need D, which is the, called the prefrontal cortex, which is where all those executive functions, as they're called, are supposedly being carried out about what time it is, where should we be next, uh, should I do this, should I do that, what's sensible, what's polite, all that. So that's down. Uh, it's lower. It's less active uh, during dreaming. As for the areas we do need, the green areas, they involve the areas that store our sense of self, that's who we are, and our memories, and our ability to make associations. And those are roughly the areas four, five, and six uh, in the green there, and part of, of the area called two. But it also includes the areas called the emotional brain, which are three and two on that uh, diagram, and, and just above three and two. Finally, dreaming also involves an area of the brain that happens to activate us whether we're in waking or in sleeping. In other words, if our brainstem, area one, is not sending signals up, then we're not going to be uh, conscious. And in the neurological tech difficulties or details of this, there are slightly different activation pathways for waking and for rapid eye movement sleep, but the waking pathway is likely contributing to brain activation during REM sleep and more especially uh, just before we wake up in non-REM sleep. And that's why I emphasize to you the issue is activation and not as you may have heard whether we're in this rapid eye movement sleep or not. It's whether the brain is activated, it can be activated in different ways, at least two different ways via the brain stem. Well, when you see how that impressive a detail uh, surely then dreams must have a purpose, an adaptive function. Uh, evolution must have conserved them. It's just about everyone thinks that, but no one knows for sure. Uh, there are a million different explanations, uh, or shall I say different purposes have been proposed uh, for dreams. Uh, but no one agrees. And I should say here that the same holds for sleep itself. Despite the fact there have been decades of intense studies by thousands, if not tens of thousands, more sleep researchers than there are dream researchers, we do not know the adaptive function of sleep. Well, if we look at some of the purposes that have been put forward 
by various uh, researchers, which is on the next graphic, we can see that Freud said dreams have an adaptive function. It's a powerful uh, theory. Dreams preserve sleep. And they do so through the his hallucinatory satisfaction, he called it, of our urges. Urges that might waken us. We have to go to the bathroom. We're hungry. We're thirsty. Instead, we have a dream that we're going to the bathroom or that we're eating or that we're drinking. And that preserves sleep. Jung said, had a more psychological theory, that we dream about those parts of the personality that aren't developed uh, during uh, our waking being. He called it a compensatory theory of dreams. They tell you what you need to work on. If you're real active and external, you'll have dreams of being intellectual, and that tells you you should develop that side of your personality. Of course, I'm desperately simplifi sim simplifying, but the idea is dreams are compensatory, and they do have that function. Modern-day psychologists are not so, uh, clinical psychologists, not so sure of either of those explanations for reasons I'll say, and so they fall back to just the general idea. Dreams are about problem-solving. After all, Barb Sanders has always dreamed about her problems with her mother. Ed is dreaming about his, uh, you know, loss of his, his wife. So maybe dreams are solving uh, problems. And finally, there are some physiologists, uh, very visible today, who claim that dreaming is involved in memory consolidation and that sleep is very important for consolidating the new things we have learned during the day. But there are also a set of psychologists called cognitive psychologists who have studied dreams in the sleep laboratory uh, over decades. Uh, and they are the people uh, that say that dreams don't have an adaptive function. And slowly, over the last 10 years, I've come to agree with them, reluctantly, but uh, now fully, but but tentatively I could be convinced otherwise. For them, for me, <laughs> dreams are the accidental byproduct of our ability to think complex thoughts and also our ability to create mental imagery uh, in our waking life. And here I would just say that little children, children under four and five, are n probably not creating that mental imagery. Well, why have I adopted such a heretical view until I see strong evidence to the contrary? And the answer is that in a lot of the information I've presented to you and a little bit that I'm going to add. First of all, children younger than six rarely dream. The dreams they have are short and simple, but they still sleep soundly, and that's tough for Freud. Uh, and I know that opens a lot of can of worms for a lot of you, and it's a whole separate long lecture of what's actually going on for these little children you think are, are dreaming. Secondly, these adults who suffer these brain injuries that I talk about and lose dreaming, they lose dreaming, at least for several months, um, they still sleep quite well. Studies have been done of them in the sleep lab. And there are a few normal adults who've been studied in sleep labs where they, you ask them, have you ever dreamed? Some of them say no, and you, so you call them back another time and you awaken them several nights, and they don't report a dream. There may be, quotes, normal people that is, I think they are normal, but they don't dream, or rarely dream. And that's all very difficult uh, for uh, Freud. And of course, all of our findings are very difficult for Jung because we see that dreams are not compensatory, but they are continuous with our waking life. You're not dreaming about the undeveloped parts of your personality. You're dreaming about what worries you and pleases you during uh, waking life. But I also add another point to you. Very few dreams are recalled. And they are very rarely, if ever, contain uh, the solution to a problem. So how could dreams have 
any function for our waking consciousness. Let me say a little more about that problem-solving kind of business because you have heard about it. When you actually look at the dreams, uh, the idea there's any kind of solution to any kind of problem a dream is rare or non-existent. What happens is that a few people come to the idea that they have a new angle on things after they wake up and think about the dream, when they project meaning onto the dream. So looking at this dramatization makes me think, oh, gee, maybe I ought to treat so-and-so differently, or maybe I ought to try it uh, this way. Furthermore, the famous cases you've heard about where somebody solved a problem in a dream, uh, these people were actually in drug states or in reverie, straight, reverie states, or they make the claim decades later, and there's no way to, uh, to check up on them. And then I think that there's another thing that's, a, I think, the most devastating point on this problem-solving theory of dreams, and that is we often wake up with no idea of a dream in our mind, and we have a fresh perspective. It's sleep, it's sleep, not dreams, that knit the raveled sleeve of care, and that leave us with a new outlook, and with the, oh, yeah, that's what I should do, that's why I should approach that math problem or this other particular uh, uh, kind of a problem. And finally, on the issue of memory consolidation, the striking thing there is our dreams are not about our memories. Our dreams are not about what happened yesterday or the week before. Our dreams are more general dramatizations of these dilemmas and interests and issues that we have. So when you ask people, look through this dream and tell me if any part of it's based on a memory or anything that happened, it's, it's a very small percent uh, of the content is, is talked about in that way. So it's very hard for me to see how dreams are a form of memory consolidation. Uh, and I might say here that there are many dream researchers, not just me, who have doubts about these studies of memory consolidation, uh, but that's a separate story. So what we faced here is an unusual outcome. Dreams have meaning, I would claim to you, but they have no, quotes, purpose. And that is not, we usually combine those two in our thinking. However, that doesn't mean they are useless. And here, of course, I'm nearing the end of my remarks. To the contrary, people all over the world have invented uses for dreams and then preserved those uses through culture, through passing them down generation to generation, probably from the very time we first have had the brains that we have now. So the next graphic lists the main uses we have invented for dreams. First, they're crucial in religious uh, beliefs and ceremonies in virtually all religions. They are seen as the gateways to the spiritual world or as messages from the deities. And indeed, the father of anthropology, a man named Tyler, had said that it's our ability to dream and the powerfulness of dreams that helps us to believe in a spiritual world. Secondly, dreams have been extremely important in many societies in medicinal kinds of ceremonies. Shamans diagnose illness in society after society around the world through trips to the dream world. And they were, in effect, of course, the first psychoanalysts. Third, dreams have a great use uh, in creative productions in art, which is not the same as problem solving. People derive new images to paint. They see beautiful, incredible new images in their dreams. They develop plots for stories. And most strikingly, studies of musicians, they hear new music in dreams. Uh, and Paul McCartney said the melody for yesterday. He heard it in a dream. He thought, well, he must have heard it somewhere else. But he couldn't find it anywhere, played it to his friends, and finally decided, well, I heard that first in a dream, which I think is appropriate to mention here in this music recital hall. 
Fourth, Western cultures find dreams useful in uh, our psychological issues, in psycho psychotherapy. They are a form of self-disclosure for those who are reluctant to talk about themselves. So I say, tell me about yourself. Well, I want to talk about it. Well, tell me a dream. Well, dreams are just far enough away. Oh, yeah, I had this dream last night, and I killed three people. <laughs> but somehow we have a distance on that. And then, well, let's talk about that. Yeah, well, I get pretty angry with Joe, and I would never kill him, but I did kill him in that dream. And so, and so they go. And indeed, studies by counseling psychologists, systematic studies, have shown that people like to talk about their dreams in preference to just talking about themselves. And furthermore, they feel that it helps them to talk about uh, their dreams. So there we give another tip of the hat to those modern-day shamans named Freud and Jung. And dreams can also be very important in tribal initiations into adulthood and indeed at other times of transition, which leads to another generalization, and you know how professors love generalizations. Dreams become important to us we turn to them, we listen to them at times of transition or crisis, whether that crisis be personal or uh, cultural. But why do dreams make such a deep impression if they are just a form of thinking with no adaptive function? Why do we insist on finding uses for them? Why do we see them as making connections to other worlds, whether that world be the spirit world for most people in the world, or in our case, to a world we do not know called the unconscious in the 20th century, a part of us that is separate that the self does not accept as part of it? Why is it that we think of dreams as that connection to that other world? Well, I think that even the concept of embodiment does not quite capture the depth of it. Uh, nor does the idea of dramatization. I think we have to draw on a 19th century, early 20th century psychologist named Havelock Ellis, who said that dreams are real while they last. Can we say more of life? Dreams are so immediate, they're so vivid, they're so, so full of details, sometimes including vivid color and creative construction, such as beautiful houses, beautiful landscapes. They are realistic, yes, but they're more than that, they're, they're so creative. In a word, we experience in dreams, we don't just think in dreams. Now, even we dream researchers, we who dissect dreams in our waking life, we also experience the powerful reality of dreams. Now, they may lose their potency upon awakening for most of us, but not always. And for some people, dreams and their impact will carry over for days, and for some, in rare cases, for a whole, a whole lifetime. And perhaps they would have even more impact, be even more real, if they had a, a continuity of memory from dreaming to dreaming. That is, if we went into dream, a dream and remembered our whole past dream life, maybe it would have that same equal powerful feeling with the reality of waking life. So we end up that we live two experiential realities that are mostly separate but are built of the same conceptual system. One of those realities is the waking state has continuity from day to day, or so we like to think. The other uh, state, the dream state, is always a new adventure uh, that seems to begin with basically from research a flip of our mental Rolodex, and then off we go. And, we and the dream then unfolds in a relatively coherent fashion. It's an epic for the ages, except we usually forget it. That is, we forget 98% of them. And I want to say that I hope that your dreams over the next few weeks are more positive 
and more elevated and more interesting, uh, intellectually speaking, than those of the thousands of people we have been able to study to date. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.